0: Grace be Jesus Christ, my name is Sister Meredith, and I'm so delighted to be here with you on this Royal and Redeemed Retreat. Admittedly, it's kind of strange to be talking to a big camera lens, but I'll get used to it. I imagine that there are hundreds of you beautiful young women watching these retreats, these talks, and hoping to gain just a little bit of insight of your own identity, as a daughter of the King. So let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. So my name again is Sister Meredith, and I grew up here in Southern California. I was born in the Philippines and came here to Los Angeles when I was seven. So I was essentially raised here in the City of the Angels. I went to college at the University of California in San Diego, and then worked for a few years owned a business, and then came to understand that God was calling me to religious life. Praise God. So I entered in 2008 with this beautiful Carmelite community, and I made my final vows in 2018 by His grace. So um, I'm just so very delighted to be here with you. And um, I know that in your first conference, Sister Gianna spoke about how the daughter of the king claims her place in the kingdom through her baptismal consecration, and that she lives her life out in the kingdom through the virtues of faith, hope, and love. I'd like to take it a little step further in our identity as a daughter, as it matures into that of spouse and mother. And it's through the teachings of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, who is my patron. She's also known as Edith Stein. And so I'm actually named after both Mary and Edith, hence Meredith. So, um, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross is actually not as well known by others. Um, she is a Carmelite. She was a cloistered Carmelite. She grew up in Breslau, Germany. She was born in Germany and was born in 1891 on the day of atonement. That particular year was October 12th. She was born to a very observant Jewish family and she had several siblings. Um, but she, her father died when she was two years old, and so her mother, a resilient and creative and businesswoman-like as she was, was able to raise her children and take over the family business that her husband had left behind, and she was able to provide for all of the children. Um, St. Edith at the time was just so um, close to her mother and saw her as a beautiful example as she was growing up as a strong and faithful woman. So um, Edith being very pensive and intellectual, very smart, she always asked questions within herself about the world around her and life and its purpose. And I suppose with the surrounding time, it was um, entering into World War I, a lot of questions. She professed herself to be an atheist by the time she was a teenager and stopped praying essentially. Then she went to the University of Göttingen, I'm not, she's probably not saying it right, in Germany and earned her doctorate in philosophy and that's where she encountered Christ. She met Christians for the first time and really experienced their joy and she ended up house-sitting for a friend of hers and picked up the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. And this is just how smart she was. She read the book overnight. She didn't sleep at all. So when she finished the book in the morning, she closed the cover and said, this is truth. And within a few months, she became baptized. So St. Edith Stein's walk in her faith really allowed her to experience um, pain because she was a Jew and to become a Catholic was like death for her because her mother would consider and her family would consider her pretty much dead to them to and to have been betrayed by them. So, so I'm sorry, so that she, they felt betrayed by her. So it was really a very difficult thing that she endured. But in that, she... Um, Proceeded to teach and learn more about her faith and with her deep intellectual capacity She really was ahead of her times during that era where woman woman was really not considered equal to man They were considered inferior in the workplace and because she was so smart and understood a depth that not many people understood philosophically um, she continued to travel Europe and was invited to give talks and conferences on the education of women. So she was able to marry her faith in the Catholic Church with her intuitiveness of woman. And she knew, she understood very deeply that woman had such a beautiful thing to offer to society if she just understood her identity as both spouse and mother and that those two dimensions of her person would really allow her to find her deepest fulfillment in life. We all want to be beautiful, right? Even at an earliest age as a child, we wanted to wear those beautiful princess dresses and spin around the room and ask our dad, Daddy, do you think I'm beautiful? It's because it's a deep question that we have. We want to be beautiful, but we also know that beauty is not based on our looks. It's not based on who has the longest lashes or the prettiest long hair. Beauty's not based on our, our being skinny or our surficial appearance, no. Beauty is actually defined simply as the ability of a created thing to reveal its inner reality. Let's chew on that a little bit. Beauty is the ability of a created thing to reveal its inner reality. So for example, a fish, a fish is meant to swim in the water. And so it is beautiful in as much as it is able, its looks is able to reveal what it's made for. It's made to be a fish in the water. So a fish has fins. It's um, made, so it's streamlined in its body so it can move through the water. If a fish is simply has those characteristics, it's beautiful. Well, what about us as women? What What is our, the, our deepest meaning? What's our purpose? Well, we know that we are baptized and consecrated to the Lord and we belong to him. But in a very specific way as women, we were meant, we were built, created to be both a spouse and a mother regardless of our vocation we're called to be both spouse and mother and those two identities are what i'd like to speak about today but first i'd like to say you know what is our what our identity is not we know this and i'm just here to remind you our identity is not based on what we do it's not based on what we earn it's not based on how funny i am it's not based on my mistakes. It's not based on my achievements. It's not based on anything other than the fact that it's already been given to me by God. By the very fact that he created me as a woman, I am loved. And I have this deep capacity to receive God in love and to receive him in others. That, I mean, even our physical Makeup is made to receive and to give. There's something very beautiful about that. And we are beautiful in as much as we're able to really understand that identity and to live that out in this royal way. This is the royal way for us, my dear sisters. It's to bring life to the world through our identity as spouse and mother. So I'd like to quote St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross you like my pink paper? So St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross says that the deepest longing of a woman's heart is to give herself lovingly, to belong to another, and to possess this other being completely. That's our deepest longing. And the only person who we can give ourselves lovingly to and to receive is God Almighty, number one, God Almighty. He is our first love. And I'm not saying this because I'm a religious. I'm saying this because we are Christians. Jesus Christ must be that first love that we must always turn back to, always and everywhere and at all times, whether we're married, single, or religious. Always, always Jesus Christ. And many of you have seen the image of the Sacred Heart, right? A priest said this to us beautifully, and I remember it, because he mentioned how Jesus Christ in the Sacred Heart is the love of all the loves that we have been searching for. The image has a wound in its side that's bleeding. It has a crown of thorns, a cross, and flames. This love of God bleeds and is wounded for love of us. It's willing to suffer sacrifice to death for love of us. This love will walk up to Calvary and be crucified on a cross for love of us. And his love is so passionate and so strong that it burns with love and longing for us. That's the love that we want. We can't find that love anywhere else but in our Lord. And we have to fall in love with Him. But we can't give what we don't have. So we first have to receive it from Him. And He's giving it to us all the time. All the time He's giving His love to us. So this love of the Sacred Heart is really um, what creates that spousal unity with between us and God. And on a practical level, we enter into that spousal relationship through prayer. What is prayer? Prayer can be defined in many ways. I've heard it defined as prayer is allowing yourself to be loved by God. Prayer is being the real you before the real God. Prayer is being alone with the alone and allowing him to love us. Prayer is, as St. Trez would say, a lifting up of our heart to God, both in joys and in trials. Prayer is relationship. Prayer is friendship. Prayer is communication with God. And we can't come to know God unless we speak to him, unless we pray unless we allow him to fill our hearts. And I know right now it might be difficult to be able to go to a chapel and pray, but your dignity is such that he is within you. You are a, you are a walking tabernacle. Wherever you are, there he is. Our mother Luisita has this beautiful quote. She says, Form a rich and beautiful tabernacle for our Lord within you, and then do not let him go. In that way, you will always have him with you. Enter within yourself, and meeting him there, tell him all your experiences. God wants to be with you. He wants to love you. But we must also spend time with him and carve up time in our schedule to be with him. Now, in as much as we identify or come to a deeper understanding of our identity as spouse or bride, I also like to say, then we understand that we can be fruitful in a maternal dimension. When we receive God's love, we want to give it back in return, and that comes through in our maternal way through women. And St. John Paul II. He beautifully quoted, in, um, or he said in his letter to women, he said that perhaps more than men, women acknowledge the person because they see the person with their hearts. Isn't that true? Don't you see people with, their, with your heart? You don't intellectualize too much. You just see the beauty of the person before you. And I think that's a gift that we've been given that brings life to the world. We are geared towards the person. We see the person, not the duty, not the task. We see the person. And by doing so, we elevate the dignity of man in society by the very fact that we've been given the gift of woman womanhood. Now, is it easy? No, it's absolutely not easy because we are wounded. We're wounded with original sin. And there are good parts of us, but those good parts of us can also turn in on itself and become a cross, become a fault. So um, maybe a gift that we have of wanting to make sure that everything is just right all around us um, for others, for ourselves, um, we have a fault of wanting to always be in control. You know, controlling. Women could be nagging. We can... um, Constantly, just want things to be so right that we worry about it. We don't trust the Lord. And we need to, as a woman, we need to be His handmaid. We need to be docile. We need to really just submit to His holy will and trust Him. You can tell Him your plans, but then let Him tell you His and submit to what He would rather want rather than yours if it doesn't match. And most of the time for me, our wills don't match. So, praise God, I have. I have, in our schedule, our time to pray so that I can constantly surrender to God. Um, We also have the ability to want to achieve our personal highest potential. We want to be the best that we can be, and we will work at doing so. But on the flip end, we can also have this excessive self-interest in ourselves. We can have a little bit of of, um, self-importance, too much self-importance that we think about ourselves too much. You know, it's a funny thing I've heard it said where someone jokes, well, enough about me. What about you? What do you think of me, right? It's that same kind of thing. We're just thinking about ourselves. And maybe it could be very subtle, but we think about how the world perceives us and we end up comparing ourselves with other people and we don't need to. We don't have to be the best at everything. We just have to be the best at who God made us to be. We don't have to be, if you're married, we don't have to have the best husband or the most well-behaved children. Or if you're single, we don't have to have the best, I don't know, even the best clothes or the best job or the best Instagram post or the best this or that. No, we don't have to constantly worry ourselves about these needless things because We know that we're loved. We know that we have a dignity that no one can take away. It's not based on those superficial things. And if it's difficult for us to believe that, which I understand, the more we need to go to God in prayer and ask him to heal our heart, to heal our heart. A good husband will do that for his wife. And only Christ can do that. Only Jesus can heal. Um we also have a gift of sensitivity um, because we are directed towards the person but then we can be overly sensitive so much so that we can't take constructive criticism from other people it's hard to um, take objective criticism and we take it as as if it's a rejection on our person when really it's just a no just don't put that vase here put it over there it's an objective thing rather than you're a bad person because you put the vase there. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure you do, but we have to get over that oversensitivity and be able to see things objectively and not as as an offense to our person. Um, We also have this desire to know other people and to get to know a little bit more about them, but it can go on the the, um, extreme of wanting to know so much about the person that we end up gossiping about that person or, sharing information, um, detracting, sharing information that really other people don't need to know. So this royal way of spousal and motherhood, spousal and maternal relationship with the Lord is not easy. It's something we have to constantly ask our, our good God to give us the grace to, to um, live out in our life. But it's, I'm reminding you again, it's just the way that will bring us greatest fulfillment. I'd like to share with you a little bit now about Esther, Queen Esther, who was born in the mid 400s BC. And she was a young Jewish girl and her parents died. And so her cousin, Mordecai, took her in as as her foster father. So in the book of Esther, it said that she was a very beautiful woman. And she was a very observant Jewish person. And so she followed the laws, of the Mosaic laws, and prayed and loved the customs of her Jewish people. Well, she lived during the time of King Ahazarius. I have a hard time saying that. Ahazarius, I think. So king, I'm just going to say the king, all right. So the king had just recently deposed Queen Vashti because... She had disobeyed him. He had called her to the court and she refused. And that was a great offense to the king. So he deposed the queen. And his counselors told him, Well, why don't you put a call out to the kingdom and bring in all the um, young virgins as a part of a harem? And uh, as a part of a harem, and then he would choose the queen from there. And so enter Esther. She was brought in as part of. one of the virgins to be a part of the king's harem. And get this, so you have to have a year of preparation um, in this harem to be even presented to the king or during in which you are presented to him. I'm not sure if you have to finish the whole year, but it's six months of lathering yourself with oil and myrrh and then another six months of putting cosmetics and stuff all over your face I I just can't imagine it so it's like spending a whole year in I guess you could say a spa which I guess it doesn't sound so bad but that's a lot of preparation so during that time the king can call you and you would you have the choice of picking whatever you wanted to bring with you um, and you would go um, at night and then come back in the morning well it came time for Esther to to be called. And the Enoch, who was a custodian of the harem, um, was expecting for her to tell him what she wanted to bring. But Esther, just being a simple Jewish girl, she didn't ask for anything. She just simply received what was suggested to her. And she lived her life that way. She was really not attached to the, these adornments and to the uh, the royalty that was around her. She was just simple and a beautiful woman. So she won the admiration of all the harem and the Enoch and the king. So the king eventually chose her to be his his queen. So at this time, Mordecai, who's her foster father, he he loves Esther so much, and he was just kind of watching over her to make sure she was all right. So he would often um, walk the uh, front of the palace and just kind of keep tabs on what was happening there. And there was the right-hand man of the king, named Haman, or Haman. Haman hated the Jews, he didn't like them, and Mordecai gave him even more reason to not like him because whenever a king's official would walk in front of you, you are supposed to bow. Well, Mordecai would bow to no one except to God our Lord, his Lord. When Mordecai, I'm sorry, when Haman walked in front of Mordecai, he refused to bow, which infuriated Haman even more. And so he contrived this plot to exterminate the Jews, literally. And he got the king's signet ring and was able to send out a message to all the Jews in the country that at a certain day, they would all be exterminated. Well, Mordecai found out about this and ended up being able to tell Esther this message. Well, he told Esther go to the king and ask him to overturn Haman's plot. And Esther sent back a message to Mordecai saying, you you don't know what you ask. I haven't been asked to go to the king in 30 days, and if I do so, he can kill me by penalty of death. If you appear to the king without being summoned, you could die. Well, Mordecai sent another message back and said, don't think that just because you live behind those walls that you're safe eventually he'll find out that you're a Jew Jew, and he'll kill you too. So what does Esther do? She calls on God's help. She sent a message back to Mordecai and said, all right, ask all the Jewish people to pray for three days and to fast on my behalf. I and my handmaids will do the same. So she went into her room, took off all her her queenly adornments, put on sackcloth and ashes, did not eat, and prayed to God for three days. She had such a strong relationship with God that she knew that he was the only person that she could turn to during her time of distress. So she did. She prayed. And then at the end of the third day, she dressed herself up in her queenly garments, and she um, made herself ready to appear to the king. And of course, she was very afraid because that could mean her death. So she walks into the king's palace, into the courtyard, to where the king was seated at his throne. And it says this, she glowed when the king saw her. She, he said, the Bible says, she glowed with the perfection of her beauty and her countenance was as joyous as it was lovely, though her heart shrunk with fear. So despite the fact that she was so afraid, she was somehow glowing with the radiance of God, God's love, and that changed the king's heart. He actually stood up in, what they said, majestic anger, but when he saw her in her beauty, his heart turned to gentleness. So he approached her and extended the scepter to her throat, which meant her neck, which meant that he didn't. Um, He negated the penalty of death. And long story short, she was able to intercede for her people, and the plot was overturned, the Haman's plot was overturned. Haman was deposed, he was killed, and all the Jews were saved. And it was through Esther's reliance and total surrender to God and her courage in doing so that she was able to approach the king, and in her maternal love for her people saved them through her intercession. And the same happened with St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross. She had entered the cloistered Carmel in Cologne, Germany during the time of World War II. And again, she had suffered a pain knowing that she was to become Catholic. She was already considered dead by her family, but it seemed as if she was now running away from all that was happening to her people when she was really running to God, following his will. But then in Cologne, she was actually putting that community, the local community in danger, so she was then transferred to Echt in Holland. And there, there was a kind of an incident where the bishops had spoken out against the Nazi regime, saying that it was wrong that what they were doing. And in retaliation, the Nazis actually went and looked at, um, picked out all the Jewish converts from the different monasteries and priests and took them and exterminated them. And that's what happened with St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross. She was pulled out of the Carmel in Act where she was placed at the time with her sister, Rosa, who was an extern. And the last words that her sisters, the nuns heard her saying was, "'Let us go, Rosa, for our people.' So she was willing to die for her people because she loved God. She loved and she trusted God, and she was willing to die for his, for his people. So on August 9th, she was brought to Auschwitz and murdered. And her, her memory, um, she was, she's been called or referred to as a little luster because their stories are the same in that they interceded for their Jewish people. Now for us, how, how does that relate to us? Maybe we won't be martyred, maybe we will, who knows? But in our everyday life, there is martyrdom, isn't there? (laughs) There's constant surrender, the constant mortification, constant just biting our lips and not saying something we rather would, or maybe saying it and then later feeling that sting of conscience where we suffer from that. But we have opportunities in our daily lives to have that courage and strength to overcome Ourselves in this royal way and become more of a spouse and mother, a spouse to God and mother of His children. I remember when I when I was in temporary profession, and I'll share this with you. But it's something that's you know was a very difficult time in my life. I um, God permits you know that we go through a time of temporary profession so that we can continue to discern God's will and we're not um, committed. in in a final consecration yet. So I was living in a um, a convent. It was difficult for me. The situation was very, 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 very difficult. God pretty much took away all my support of um, sisters of my age group or even the amount of sisters I was living in. The apostolate that I had was difficult. And I remember kneeling at the tabernacle, at the sanctuary, and looking up at the tabernacle and crying my eyes out. I was just being the real me before him, and I was saying, are you serious? Is this really what you're calling me to? Do you really want me to suffer like this? It's not worth it. And in my tears, I heard him say to me, well, it's not worth it, but I am. And that brought me great peace, because he is worth it. He's worth the suffering. So whatever sufferings you're going through, God is worth it. He died for us to to prove to us his love. So in our small way, we can also share in the suffering that he endured because there is no suffering that you endure that he has not done, he has not endured before you. He will give you the strength, and it's only through that spousal, intimate relationship that you have with him that you'll be able to gain the grace and the strength to endure those crosses in your life. So many of you maybe are single, maybe you're married, maybe you're um, single in the world, whatever, maybe you have your vocation already figured out or you're discerning your vocation. Whatever it is, I, I challenge you in a loving sisterly way to ask God to really bring it to the Lord and ask him what he wants of you. Instead of telling him what you'd like, ask him first. And listen, in those difficult circumstances in life, when you're maybe having an argument with your husband or a friend, do you pray for that person? Do you ask him to grant that person the grace to be open-hearted and to ask you to be open-hearted so that you can reconcile in your relationship? He must always be the first person that you go to. That's what a spouse does. You always go to, to God first because he's the one who'll give you all the answers and he will fix it for you. Trust that he will fix it for you. So here we are um, at the end of our talk. I'm hoping to have a um, a little PDF with notes with um, some scripture readings based on the bridal relationship between God and his people as well as um, some scripture on the mother, the woman, our blessed mother at the beginning in Genesis and in Revelation. So if you feel so inclined to pray through those, those different scripture readings, but I do um, really encourage you to be that light, that feminine light to our world and to allow God to really make you that woman that he created you to be through those two dimensions of spousal love and maternal love that you were made for. You are beloved, you are worthy, and you are cherished. God bless you. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please be assured of our daily prayers for you. God bless you.